Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my old pals Evan Grant and David Moore. Hello, boys. How we doing? We're good. I'm good. I don't know about David. I, it's presumptuous of me to speak for David. I, I'm sure I'm, I, I'm fine. You don't I, really I, care. You don't really care whether I'm good or not. As long no, as this you're is good. all transactional for me, boys. <laughs> yeah. Oh, We've been watching Succession. That. Yeah, transactional is going to be my new word. Everything is transactional. Yeah. I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're picking up new words as you go along here, Evan. That's great. Uh, you're, in the, you're in the word business. So. Transactional. What does that mean? Uh, it means everything has to do with a transaction. <laughs> <laughs> it means it means Evan's not interested in you unless you can make <laughs> yeah, him money. That's pretty evident. What's in it for me, Evan Grant? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's great to have everybody back on board. Uh, we, we've all kind of been either on or off here, and uh, it's just nice to have everybody up and on the podcast this week. I know our uh, our, our four listeners will really appreciate that. Um, so it's, I don't think I've been off. No, I don't think I've been off. You, you've been off. You just didn't know it, but you've been off. I am off, but I haven't been off. Yeah. Yeah, Can we get this going? I need to meet somebody for coffee. Yeah. Okay. All right. That'd be good. All right. We had a few things going on lately, uh, here in Dallas and around. Uh, so it's been big news this week. We we've had the, the women's final four here, which, which was a, Big splash. My gosh, uh, what a job uh, by those teams in the Final Four. We've had uh, the men's Final Four down in Houston. So Texas is officially a basketball state. I just wanted to say that. You know, no longer football. It's We're, we're basketball, baby. We're hooping. You know, the Hoosier State's got nothing on us. Uh, well, except also, for the professional teams. We'd well, except probably for that. point that out. <laughs> except for that. All except three for the fact this will be the first time that all three Texas teams will not, none will make it to the postseason. But yeah, we'll get back on great, that in a bit. That's a great note, isn't it? Yeah, we're going to talk about the Mavericks here in a minute as well. We're going to probably kick off with them and also talk about uh, some of the stuff that uh, is going on with the Cowboys and leading up to the draft. And then obviously the Rangers and off to a great start. So we got a lot of stuff happening here. We're going to, we're going to try to, Cover all of it. Stop uh, your blathering and let's go. You know, people like to know what we're going to talk about, okay? That's, that's so transactional of you. It really was. It was Evan. That's the, the, meter is, the meter is clicking with Evan, right? You know, it's like, wow. We're, we're, we're costing him money every every second we're not doing something he wants. So, all right, let's, let's jump right into the Mavericks here, David. So, uh, they got three games left as we're taping this. Uh, basically almost zero shot of making the playoffs. And at this point, why would you want them to make the playoffs is what I'm going to ask you, David. Oh, maybe a little bit of professional pride. Maybe uh, for two of the greatest 10 players in the league at the moment to actually fight through adversity and uh, carry their team to achieve something rather than falling into the lottery with the slim hope that you'll get the number one pick and just wind up with another swing guy that you won't play much in the first season anyway. Uh, you know, look, I get it. E- even if they get into the postseason, uh, it's very clear this team's not going to do anything. And and basically, based off of what we've seen, I don't even know that they deserve to be in the postseason. They certainly don't appear to. But all of that being said, you know, and, and, and stop me if I'm wrong. Weren't, weren't we having a conversation early in the season about whether or not Luca had a legitimate shot at the MVP of the league? 
So do you just want your MVP of the league packing it up when a team's at a crossroads going, eh, we're not going to do anything this year. Let's just concede and, and, you know, live to get stats another day. I I think there's, look, they put themselves in this position, but I'll always rather see, especially the way the NBA draft is set up with the lottery. I would always rather see a team with stars on it uh, like this team has, and it has two of the top 10 players in the league without question. I would rather see them show me a little something, fight through adversity, show some resolve, um, develop more of an edge rather than just go, oh, well, this just isn't our year. Forget it. Let me just say that if you if you made the trade that you made for Kyrie Irving and you put together these two guys and you end up tanking the last weekend of the season, heads need to roll. I mean, jobs need to be lost. You, you can't make the biggest acquisition of the trade deadline and then decide, ah, we're just going to tank it. I mean, that where's the accountability in that? Exactly. But that's this is who this is who they are, though, right? I mean, we can say that all we want to, but this is who they are. I mean, we, we've seen them play now. We know who they are. When they made the deal, you know, I was willing to be open minded about it, and let, let's just see what happens here in, in these remaining games and see how they do uh, and see if this corrects any issues. Obviously, it didn't correct any. You know, I'm I'm not going to blame Kyrie Irving for that. They were a lousy defensive team when they got him, and they and they still are. They're they're terrible defensively. They've got no inside presence whatsoever. Uh, the Christian Wood thing was a bigger bust than the Kyrie Irving deal. You know, Kyrie's played pretty well. Uh, and they haven't won with him on the floor, um, but they haven't won with Luca on the floor either. So um, the, the real issue here is, is that after a year after Nico Harrison made a pretty stunning trade of Kristaps Porzingis for basically Spencer Dinwiddie uh, in, a, in, a, in a trade that uh, – that made a real difference, you know, on that team, you know, that it turned them around. They, they became a, 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 you know, a team that, that went on a big run and then went all the way to the Western conference final and posed its wills, its will on all these uh, opponents. You know, it was just an amazing thing to watch after that team played so well with so much grit. And it was such a great move uh, to do that. And <laughs> which shows you how great it was. I disagreed with it. So, uh, and then they come back this year and play the way they've played all year long, I just don't get it. I don't understand what's going on. We've had reports here by uh, Tim McMahon of ESPN that Jason Kidd has lost the locker room. The Mavericks insist that's not the, the case, that they, he, he has not lost the locker room. But something definitely has happened here. Um, and it's it's more than just, you know, giving up Dorian Finney-Smith in the deal for Kyrie Irving or, or Spencer Dinwiddie, I, you know, who's obviously, obviously also a pretty good defensive player. But they weren't good defensive or weren't a good defensive team with those two guys this year. So there's just a lot of stuff going on here. And and what, when we were debating and discussing the wisdom of the Kyrie Irving trade, what was the one thing no one called into question? Everyone agreed for the immediate future, for the present, it was a good deal. Well, even that (laughs) didn't work out. I mean, that was the one thing, because again, for what they gave up, for what Kyrie has been and how he projects on this team going forward, whether he would be part of this team going forward, all of those were legitimate questions. But but everyone washed that away by saying, okay, the Mavs can deal with that at the end of the season. 
There is no question this is the best move for the moment. And when it blows up on the one positive you couldn't contest about the deal, blows up in your face. Look, they were number four in the West when this deal was done. They're now 11. And uh, just, they've lost, again, I find amusing. It's like, oh, well, if they win these final three, you know, Oklahoma City has a tough schedule. Uh, You know, they can get into the play-in. They've lost seven of eight. Look at their body language in games. Look at how they consistently fall behind. Look at how they have no uh, cohesiveness or, or, or playing to, you know, sense of playing together. This team's not going to make it. But just to say, okay, we're just going to shut down Luka and Kyrie for these final three games. So you're going to make this major trade, and these guys are going to have played together, what, 12, 14 games after you make the deal? And now this is, uh, you know, I, t- I tell you what, they're – they're in a really big bind now because this is the classic how can you let him go, how can you keep him scenario with Kyrie Irving going forward. And neither one is particularly a good answer at the moment from what we've seen. No, it isn't. And uh, and that's the, that's the thing that we, we had talked about. I'll tell you this. When, when, when the trade was made or when it was about to be made, I was talking to Brad Townsend about it, and, and Brad was vehemently – uh, uh, well, let me just say that, that Brad would really question the question the wisdom of the move. Yes, question the wisdom of the move. He he did say one of the things he could see is an upside of it is if you did not resign Kyrie, then you'd have that thirty six million dollar or something like that hole in the in the cap and for what all of that. Yeah, and what are you going to wind up with? You know, well, that's that's, that's a good question. Uh, the, the question is because if you look out there, there's not a lot of uh, big time free agents out there. Now, supposedly you could do a sign and trade, uh, and there's been a lot of speculation. I don't know where this comes from that uh, that he would go to the in a sign and trade. You could t- send him to the Lakers, and he and you get Anthony Davis in return. I got to tell you, I'm not excited about Anthony Davis. Talk about you know guys who can't stay on the floor. Uh, throughout his career, that's been his issue. So I, I I don't know that it would be any worse than what you got here with Kyrie Irving because even as good as he is, he's not making him any better. He's certainly a terrible defensive player. Uh, so I, I really don't know what you do to fix this. We had not even mentioned this because we, we have a hard time pronouncing it, but Victor Wimbanyama, uh, who is supposed to be the number one pick of the draft, a generational player. We've heard that before, uh, but he is available. Now, if they make the, as as Brad Townsend explained today, because of the way the lottery works, now if you make that top, uh, you know, if, you, if you're in the lottery, then you then, then Ten is protected. Wrong. Top 10, yeah, you're protected. You're, Mavericks you're, pick you're, is protected. They don't have to move it to New York. They don't have to move it to New York, but you also have the possibility, even if you finish ninth, 10th, 11th, you got infinitesimal uh, odds of actually – getting the, the number one pick uh, when they have the drawing for that, when they draw the lottery ball. So this, it's a possibility that the Mavericks could do that. And, and as Brad pointed out, probably just as good a odds of the Mavericks going into the playoffs and winning anything as the same odds of, of getting Wimbanyama at this point. Um, I, and, I, and like you, David, I, I don't see that there's any great shakes of the guys that are, you know, from what I've looked at in the projected of the lottery, I think it's hilarious that two of them are Arkansas Razorbacks. We got yeah. eliminated early on in the tournament. I realized one of those guys did. Just back to the triplets. Was it Sydney Moncrief? <laughs> well, one of them? They had two top 10 picks 
and they and they you know they still struggle. Uh, so anyway, uh, that, that tells you a lot about uh, how these this talent works. So <clears throat> it's going to be very interesting to see what the the Mavericks do this week. Um, there's no question that this has been one of the most disappointing seasons certainly in Mavericks history, wouldn't you say? I mean, I, I can't think of a time coming off a of Western Conference Finals, you would have felt like, look, there there was a possibility. We all knew that there was a little bit of a lightning in a bottle thing last year, right? It was sure. It was a great little run and they and they kind of they were overachievers and all that. But you wouldn't have expected them to have lost all that mojo either. You would have still expected the the mindset to be there. And as you pointed out, I don't I don't even think the mindset's there anymore. You know, but they, they they kept talking about well when Maxi Kleba comes back, oh everything will be a lot better. Well, yeah, Maxi Kleba was the well, he's secret you know, sauce, as they say. Know, that was a real problem thinking that was going to happen. You know, uh, and, and that's an issue too. I would think at the very least, David, that the roster going into the next season is going to be a lot different from what it has been for the last two or three years. Well, it is. This gets back to. And if you're a good team, you can't consistently churn your roster at the top the way the Mavericks have done in recent years. Um, you need to settle on something and go forward with it. They lost their a key person last year with Brunson because they didn't identify him properly early enough in order to retain him, and that really set them back. But, you know, I think we need to discuss Luca here and his culpability and what's happened. I mean, again, early in the season – there was a legitimate buzz about, you know, where does this guy rank as far as the MVP of the league? Look at what he's doing. Uh, you know, he is a generational player, no question. But this is the other side that comes with that status. You know, do you have the temperament to go out there week in and week out when things aren't right, when emotionally you're not feeling uh, quite up to it? As, as he mentioned earlier, um, you know, about how there were some things bothering him. Um, when you're a player at his level to, if you really are a true superstar, you have to work your way past all of that and continue to perform at an unreal level. And we have not seen that. You can say it's injuries. You can say he's gotten worn down, whatever, but, uh, his body language has been really bad. His buy-in on the defensive end, uh, has not been there the way it needs for this team to be a good defensive team in key moments. Uh, so, you know, I, I think this is the first time it, it's all been roses and plaudits for, you know, Luca up to this point and justifiably so, but I, I think the way this season has ended and if what people say about him is true, I, I think he's going to be very self-critical and look at this and say, well, what, what didn't I do here? What did I allow to affect me? And what effect did that have on the team? Uh, this could be a, a positive for him going forward as far as stealing that mentality that you really want or, or, or need that really sets the elite players apart. But again, and that's why I'll go back to, really, you want to shut them down for three things? You, you These final three games, play through adversity. How much adversity has he had in his career to come back from? And, and that what does that show your teammates and what does that show you? Fight through this. Don't just go, eh, let's acquiesce. I, I just don't think great players do that. Very quickly, I'll go back to, and, and this is this is a big callback, and it shows my age again, but very early in Michael Jordan's career, the Bulls were faced with this same decision, and 
club officials were openly talking about, well, this is a young team. We're not going to win it this year. It makes more sense. Uh, Michael Jordan hurt his foot. Let's not let's shut him down for the year, and we'll go back in the lottery. We'll get another good player, and we'll go from there. We'll hit the court running next year. What did Michael Jordan say? I don't want to be a part of an organization that doesn't want to win. I'm coming back, and we're going to win every game we can. Now, that's an extreme example. There have been very few Michael Jordans in, in league history, but that actually that's the tone you want to set for a franchise with your top player, not – Oh well, just you know, forget about this season, big guy. We'll come back next year. It'll be all good. Well, there's a lot of things that going on with Luca that need to be fixed, right? Uh, and there's no question about that. One, he's got he's got to take seriously uh, staying in shape, uh, putting his body first. Uh, he he's never done that over an extended period of time. There's no question about that. Uh, number two, he's got to get straight whatever it is uh, in his own uh, life to make keep himself happy uh, and whatever is the problem. He's got to work that out and not let it transfer to the court because you're 24 years old and you're a millionaire. You shouldn't have any real problems uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and, and I'm not saying if, he, if he's got some mental health issues, and that's another thing altogether. But if it's just a, a matter of uh, he's unhappy with his, his family life, uh, whatever that is, you can't let that uh, uh, translate over to the to basketball court. No, and, uh, and as far three, as conditioning, as far as conditioning, he can come to you, me, or Evan to see how you should. Oh, absolutely! I can get him on a really good plan here any minute now. Uh, but but then number three, he he just got to uh, make that commitment to the team uh, that that he that's what he's all about, uh, and, and get get this whole thing with uh, officiating. It's just gone too far, uh, and too many people, too many people, frankly, within the organization. Well, a certain yeah. owner enables him on that, so. Well, he does, uh, but but there are people within the organization who aren't happy about it. I'll just say yeah. that, uh, and so they they have got to they've got to move on. He's got to move on and grow up. Uh, no no question about that. All right, that's going to do it for the uh, Mavericks part of our podcast. Uh, We're going to move on, but not grow up into our next segment. We we never going to grow up. Are you kidding? Uh, but we are going to move into our next segment, which we're going to talk about uh, the little bit of college basketball here in the in the end of college basketball for another season. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun here at the very end. Um, the the women's final four was here. We predicted last week. Uh, Evan did. Who did we say we we're going to win? I think I said Iowa, uh, but I. I remember what we talked about I was South that, Carolina. You we you and I debated Kim Mulkey versus. Uh, um, Don Staley. Don Staley. Um, yeah. uh, and you know, listen, I, I, I proved right about that one. Uh, I, I got right about Kim Mulkey. She, uh, she, there, there is no doubt about Kim Mulkey being a heck, uh, hell of a coach. Um, but Kim Mulkey ended up not being the story. Isn't that crazy? Kim Mulkey with that outfit and with her coaching style and the fact and her that her personality, is, yeah, she is the only. She, I think she's only the second woman ever to win uh, a championship at two different schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's and it's now third all time. Yeah, it's third all time now with four. And she's third all time in wins. And, that, and 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 let's consider the fact also that Kim got a late start. She was at La Tech for for what fifteen years as an assistant. If she had, you know, and she has uh, confessed that. I was just scared to leave. I just thought that I was supposed to be Leon's guy, and I was just waiting for Leon to leave, and I was going to take the job at that point. Uh, she had many offers to leave before that. Uh, so she'd have a lot more wins if she had uh, left sooner there. Uh, but, yeah, it's amazing that she was not the story in the end about all that. So 
Um, so just to set that up, obviously the LSU plays Iowa in the championship game, uh, a terrific game. It would have been a lot better if the officials hadn't have uh, gotten so involved in it and ridiculous the number of fouls that were called. The technical on Caitlin Clark, Clark for, for flipping the ball around her back was just unbelievable. Uh, I, I can't think of another basketball game at any level in which a player of that caliber would have gotten a technical for flipping a ball behind her back. I was just, it was like high school officiating. And at that point of the game, which gave her her third, which she had to, and again, Angel Reese got two early fouls too, which were very tic-tac and, and, and she had to sit down. So both, Oh, there was all kinds the of two all, top all players on both teams. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I didn't want to imply that it was just one way or the other. Yeah. It's just terrible on both sides. It's too much officiating. Yeah. Nobody yeah. Yeah. We're that. burying the lead here. Let's get to the Angel Reese, Caitlin Clark. Game. I want to talk about the, how good the game was first. It was a great game, a much better game than the, the men's championship. So impatient, Evan. Come yeah. on. In the men's championship game, if San Diego State could shoot at all, they might have had a chance to win that game. Uh, if they had if San Diego State had Caitlin Clark, they would have won that championship game. Uh, the, the best, she's one of the best shooters I've ever seen. Uh, I think she's she's right up there with Steph Curry and her ability to catch a ball and get it off and and be so accurate with it at the same time. And the length doesn't seem to matter to her. Just an amazing player to watch. But as Evan pointed out, we want to get to the controversy, which has been, uh, of course, Angel Reese uh, giving the you can't see me uh, with her hand in front of her face and flashing that throughout the I guess it was I'm trying to think about when it first started. Um, And so, first of all, I want to ask you guys how you felt about the fact, A, just that that Angel Reese chose to do that. You got a problem with it? Okay, so. Uh, I, it, it's hard to have a reasonable discussion on this, um, but here you just said you want to have a discussion. It, but it is hard to have a reasonable discussion on this. But let me let me just preface it with that. But let me say this: when Angel Reese did the "you can't see me" thing, my first initial reaction at home was kind of a grimace that she didn't need to like go do that in that situation. I also realized that I had seen Caitlin Clark do the same thing uh, earlier, and I was like. Hey, you're just you just won not, the not earlier in that game, but earlier no, in the earlier tournament. in the tournament. Yeah, uh, you just won the championship. You can do you you won the championship. You can walk the walk. You can do you can definitely talk the talk. So um, after a two second kind of feeling of disappointment that hey, this didn't need to be done in a championship moment, um, I became completely okay with it. What I didn't become okay with was the narrative that seemed to follow about how unsportsmanlike this was. Well, let me let me take that back. You might be able to say it was unsportsmanlike if you want to, but we had people like Keith Olbermann calling her an idiot on Twitter. Um, we had people using really derogatory names for something that may have been 10 seconds longer than Caitlin Clark did, but was the exact same thing that Caitlin Clark did. I think it was Haley Van Lith of of Louisville who had been, and the two had been jawing all game, I believe. So um, I really also felt like when I pushed on this a little bit online and I got some responses from people, we saw some of the underlying issues there you know i had people calling angel reese a thug and it just you know say you say you've got some 
harbor some racist feelings without saying you've got racist feelings. I mean, that's kind of the way it came across. David? There's there's always been a double standard on black players celebrating and white players celebrating. Often uh, a demonstrative display by a white player celebrating is, oh, look at that passion. Wow, is, isn't this great? It's kind of infectious. And often a black player is like, well, what are they, uh, you know, come on, you know, just show a little more sportsmanship, show, show a little more decorum. Uh, so, so in some ways it's, Class. It's I, I often get the word class, clat, which is another. These are all code words, right? And and this is this is this has always been the case. And um, I, I will say this, and and Evan, I know exactly what you're talking about because in in today's social media environment, you have to be either Team Caitlin, I mean, have either Team you know Clark or Team Reese, uh, and you can't have any discussion in between. And which was why I was hesitant to weigh in because, look, I found it fun. That's what men do. You know, another thing is we haven't talked about a lot of this argument is misogynistic as well, I, I think, because it's like, oh, well, look, yeah, yeah, we see this from men competitive sports, but not women. Come on. that Women are better. Women should be better. Why? It's the same, you know, uh, why is this double standard in place? Because you're condescending to women and what competitive athletics is for women. That's the only reason. So what was different about this than say like a Christian Leitner in the tournament, right? Exactly. Exactly. So you have another layer there, but, but I, I will say this, and this is why it's very difficult to have these conversations and such limited characters on social media. I do believe there's such a thing as a proportional response. Right. And to me, you just flash up, okay, well, Caitlin Clark did this in the Louisville game, and now, you know, Angel Reese does it. So look, what Angel Reese does is fine. Well, Clark did it in passing directly to the the athlete that they were going at it all game. And it was just a it was just kind of between them, right? She didn't make a show of it. She didn't she didn't pursue and openly taunt in that setting. Whereas Angel Reese did it at the free throw line. Then when the game was over, she pursued her, walked away from where she was down at the free throw line, came all the way out past midcourt to follow and do that. So it that was different. It was a different proportional response. All right. Here's, here's my take on all that because what David said, and I think it's exactly right. Um, Look, I want to say right up front, I don't like this kind of stuff from anybody because I think everybody's supposed to be an example, right? It's just like coaches, players, whatever. You, 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 if, if, I, if your son or daughter is playing, you know, uh, youth sports and they see this and they pick this kind of thing, what would you think then if your kid did it? So you don't, you don't like it. I, I just think in any kind of situation, if you're throwing gas on a fire when, when, you, when you're winning, you're obviously going to win. It's just not good. Uh, I, I do think it's proportional response, but I think what we need to look back at in this whole situation is what caused Angel Reese and Alexis Morris to say the things they did about uh, Iowa going into that game. Why did they? Why did Alexis Morris say that she was thought it was disrespectful what the, the defense that uh, they played against in the semifinals, what Iowa played in the semifinals, and what they were referring to was when Caitlin Clark was supposed to be guarding a player. She did not even go out to her, and she just kind of waved her hand at her and dared her to take a shot. Well, and then 
Okay, you could say that was disrespectful if you want to. The girl didn't take the shot. She passed. So Caitlin Clark did the right thing by not going out and guarding her. That's not that, disrespectful. That's Well, I don't think it's disrespectful either, but they thought it was. And so I think what happened here, and this is just me, you know, uh, you know, pondering this, this whole situation, is that they got tired of the narrative of Caitlin Clark. They got tired of the narrative that this woman was so great. Everybody was talking about her and everything that she was doing. They saw her do that. They saw her give the, uh, the you can't see me. Uh, so it's like, well, she can do these things and get away with them. And so they went into that game feeling like we're going to show her and we're going to make a scene of this. And as David pointed out, Kaylin didn't do anything to Angel Reese in the course of that game that caused her to do that. And that's what made it different is that she went into that game thinking, I'm going to do this to her. Then Kaylin Clark had not done a thing to, to make her feel that way in the course of that game. So I have a problem with a response that's premeditated. If, 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 if during the course of the game, someone does something to you and then you got a right to respond to that uh, in, in, in some fashion, as long as you're not going to get a technical or get your team in trouble. And that's fine. Uh, I thought that was prolonged. And I thought she'd done it one time. If Angel Reese had done it one time, she would have been fine. But you, when you're pursuing somebody around the court, that's not good. So let me just say then that what we have here is that I think that when everybody says that these are real issues that we have in sports and it's, our, and it's a racial issue and a misogynistic one, as David said, that's absolutely correct. But we also have to look at this particular instance and say, yeah, but was this really right? You know, I, I, I concede all those other things. But when Stephen A. Smith says that Caitlin Clark had been in the same situation, she would have done the same thing. Well, you can't say that. That's a ridiculous thing to say. You don't know if Caitlin Clark would have done it or not. And furthermore, I would have just hoped that Angel Reese would have been so excited about winning the national championship, she wouldn't have cared a rip about Caitlin Clark at that point. And she would just be celebrating with her teammates instead of worrying about going around and trying to show up uh, Iowa's best player. Well, but, the, and, and, I mean, we get into conjecture here, right, Kevin? We talk about how the narrative was formed perhaps for the LSU players about how Caitlin Clark had become the darling of this tournament and how she had disrespected. And if we want to get into conjecture and we know what a strategist Kim Mulkey is and what a motivational uh, speaker she is, do you think she may may have played that up with her team? Um, well, sure. I mean, we saw that back. question go back into the eighties with you know, she fostered that you know, whole attitude. Bill Bill Roden wrote a piece for for ESPN talking about uh, going back to you know and and kind of developing this whole thing and saying that she, that Angel Reese didn't do anything wrong. And this goes back to the eighties uh, in the Final Four when uh, when Georgetown played Houston and they were they were characterized as a bunch of thugs. Uh, and and I, I look back on that and I think it's an interesting point to make because. Because I covered those Houston teams, and I remember their five slam and jam warmups. I can remember when uh, in the Southwest Conference basketball tournament, very prominent columnists from this state wrote that they looked like a bunch of thugs in those warmups. Right? Yeah. That's the University of Houston. I think about the fact that if it had been the if it had been a University of Houston player that had been involved in an incident where someone was shot and killed during the season, as a, as what happened in Alabama, what would we be saying about the University of Houston? Right. Would we say that they're a bunch of thugs? Uh, so I, I do think that there are scenarios like that. There, those, those are, there's no question about those kind of things, and those are happening. And I don't, I don't, and I think there's no question that Kim probably did play that out to those players uh, that this is a possibility that this could happen. But at the same yeah. point, I want to. I just want to. I want to go back to one personal experience that I had, and that is the Jose Bautista bat flip in 2015 
uh, and people's response to that and how it was showing up the Rangers and how it was unsportsmanlike. And we can talk about proportional response and all that stuff. And certainly there's a difference between a team in a dugout versus going after a guy who's a, or, or a fellow player that's on the floor. But my point is, I, I spent so much time trying to understand and defend the Rangers' perspective on how offensive it was and realized at the end of the day that it was silly that to most people, what they saw was a bat flip. And to most people online, what they saw was Angel Reese making the same gesture. They didn't break it down to how many seconds or how she pursued it. I get that in this conversation, we are talking about proportional response, but I also try and understand, like, for a large proportion of people, what they saw and their interpretation was that Angel Reese did the exact same thing that Caitlin Clark did. And I think we need to look at people and, and understand that perspective. Um, I agree. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And th- that that's exactly that's exactly right. Uh, another thing, since we're doing a flashback, I know we need to move on from this. And then we can give the, the men's side the 10 seconds they deserve in our conversation <laughs> of, of college basketball of Final Four. But... I go back to another example, and you brought this up. We've talked about it, the jealousy aspect of it, and the, the narrative of, oh, you know, Caitlin Clark, what, what an incredible player and all this. Let's go back to when Larry Bird, who was also a classic trash talker, came into the league. There was a lot of animosity, and what happened in his first All-Star game? Isaiah Thomas and some of the black players froze him out didn't let him get the ball because they thought he was getting too much. There, there are elements of that in this as well. And you could see by the response of, of, of some of the LSU players, I think they were just tired of hearing about this savior to a sport that they don't believe needs saving because look at us. And, and, and they showed it in that game. They were a much better team from, from And let's not play down our role in all of this because if you yeah. watch video, you could see you know that the last minute of the game – Kim Mulkey spent the spent the entire time in tears realizing what she had accomplished at LSU with the final gun with the final buzzer I think it was um Morris leaped into Kim Mulkey's arms mm-hmm. in the exact expression of joy and, and elation that Kevin said but we in the media and we as a society we gravitate towards this other juicier element that somebody did what they weren't supposed to do at the end of the game and Ultimately, I think our colleague, Tim Kalishaw, had a really good take at the end of everything is if you sit back after 24 hours and say, hey, people's passions got inflamed by the women's college basketball tournament. That is the greatest step forward that the women's tournament could take. People were into it. I mean, I watched the fi- the semifinal game on Friday night. I watched Caitlin Clark at the end of that game. And if people are into it and it moves more towards equality in terms of the way people just feel about the game, then that is a huge step forward. And for whatever their roles, Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark and Kim Mulkey and Lisa Bluter and everybody else that was involved deserve a big hand and, and a big round of applause for saying this was a better tournament than the men's tournament. And you want well, to see no those teams play again next year, right? Yes. And they will. 
They could. We'll see how that goes. Uh, but they certainly could. Well, uh, yeah, the, the men's tournament, yeah, it was bad. Uh, no, the men's tournament wasn't bad. The men's- yeah, it was bad. It was bad, Evan. <laughs> the first, the first round was full of upsets, Kevin. It was be the quiet, final be, four that wasn't great. Be quiet. Well, I'm, I'm watching that game, the, the championship game, and every time oh. San Diego State takes a shot, I'm thinking, this is not going in. Why? This is not yeah. going in. This is just terrible, terrible basketball. Oh, my gosh. They, the the ratings are going to be interesting. I think the women was 9.9 million. Uh, when we're taping this, we don't know what the ratings were for the men yet, but I would, I would imagine there's a chance it will come in under that. Oh, the, the men's tournament was, was fine until we get to that point. But it was, it, 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 we, when we talked about this last week, it, it was the, the evolution of the men's tournament really was interesting this year and how, how, what happened. And, and it, what happened in the end was, that okay, if you play really tough defense, you have a chance to win. But you've got to have somebody who can shoot, and that's what happened with UConn. Uh, UConn plays really good defense, uh, and they also could shoot. And so you had more, you had more memorable upsets in the men's tournament, but you had more memorable names in the women's tournament. And how it, that's a big surprise, right? Yeah, it is a big surprise. There's no question about that. And I'm listen. I'm completely serious about Caitlin Clark's shooting ability. I think you know if you could protect her and put her. And put her out there on the floor. Uh, you, you could win some games with her. Yeah. I mean, she's just her shooting ability is just phenomenal. So I do, I do think it's unfortunate that it, it evolved this way. And if it makes something out of women's basketball, then okay, great. Uh, I, I do think though that th- there's always that tendency, and I and I read this in Bill Rhodes' column that oh yeah, that the a Luka Doncic, a, a, a you know a Jokic, uh, you know a Larry Bird, they get oversold about how good they really are. It's like. Did we really oversell these guys? I mean, there, there are things about them that are really pretty good. I, I hate to say that someone's not any good because, oh, that's just because they're we're white and we're saying that. Uh, I, I'd like to think that we're still not that backwards. I, I'm not saying that, that certainly in society there's not that element. And if we're talking about what happens on social media and if we're putting any kind of gauge on that, well, we're lost because anything you're going to find on social media, it's just going to turn ugly. So. Social media is made up of 49% of people who look to be offended and 49% of people who want to offend people. And then there's two people, 2% in the middle that are just like, uh, what to do? Yeah, what happened there? Yeah. All right. That's going to do it for our basketball, college basketball talk. Uh, and uh, we've talked about the Mavericks. So now we're moving over to the Rangers, who, uh, who got off to a great start this season. Evan, tell us why in the last two games – after the Rangers scored what twenty-seven runs in their first two games, the most the the I guess the uh, tied with what what team were they tied with that uh, scored? Uh, well, Milwaukee had scored twenty-seven in nineteen seventy-eight and nineteen eighty, and those were the teams that later became pretty much Harvey's wallbangers and ended up winning a World Series um, with a bunch of those hitters. But the the team the one team that had scored more was the. 1951 Chicago White Sox with our dear old departed friend Eddie Robinson on that team as a leading home run hitter. Um, they scored 30 in the first two games against the St. Louis Browns. And, you know, when a team that is no longer in existence is part of the uh, part of the record, you know, it's historic. Yeah, that's right. So why is it then that they have struggled the last two games, Evan? Uh, I, I, I'm not entirely sure, but I was just looking back this morning and, um, I, you know, the over – over the last two games, they have seen a lot more breaking pitches and a lot more off-speed stuff than they did in the first two games. I think against against Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler, they really came out hunting fastballs, and they were successful. 
Um, I know that uh, last night after the Orioles uh, flipped uh, to Columbe and then Wells, uh, more than half their pitches were off-speed pitches. And I think on uh, on Sunday, um, uh, 60 of the Phillies' 104 final pitches were all off-speed stuff. So, you know, I think the, the the book get the book gets out in 24 hours on teams now, right? And if you if you're out there hunting fastballs, teams are going to go more and more off-speed, and so I think that'll be the next adjustment that the Rangers have to make. But that leads into my point, Kevin, and that is, I think this team. You know, there are, there are physical adjustments you have to make, but I think a team that shows it's capable of playing fundamental baseball, which the Rangers did over the first weekend, um, in a far superior way than I've seen in the last few years, uh, those are the teams that are capable of making adjustments physically. Uh, they did what the game asked them to do. There were they, they had three sacrifice flies over the first weekend. They took walks. Uh, they move, you know, guys like Josh Smith, and we'll get to Josh Smith in a minute, and Josh Young took walks to move the, the line along. It made the batting order deeper and more effective, and uh, defensively, they made plays. And so you do those things, you're not going to beat yourself. And and that's what the Rangers did in the first two games is they didn't beat themselves and gave themselves a chance to pile on. One quick question about that game last night. If – the infield hit by Josh Young had happened in the seventh inning. You think that goes down as a hit? I, you know, I've been I've been part of a game like that when I was uh, around the Braves in 1991, and it became a combined no hitter because Terry Pendleton had almost the same exact play in the ninth inning of that game and was charged with an error, uh, and so it ended up as a combined no hitter. It would have been an interesting call, um, but I, I I think uh, I think now you're not going to go back and have a, a no hitter in hindsight. No, probably not. And besides, multiple pitchers, those shouldn't even count, frankly. Uh, unless you, one guy throws it, okay, I'm fine with that. I don't want I don't want a no hitter with with five guys. Uh, that's that's ridiculous. All right, Evan. So uh, you you said that you want to talk about Josh Smith. Obviously, he took a. a, a, a thankfully, it was not a fastball uh, to the face. It's never. <laughs> Never to take a ball to your face at 89 miles an hour is never a good thing, but it's better than taking a, a 96 or 97 uh, mile an hour fastball too, though. So uh, the preliminary uh, findings were that uh, no broken bones uh, and that uh, maybe not a long time absence here. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, you said 95 mile an hour fastball. That's what Willie Calhoun took off of his jaw in the spring of 2020. And I think is, you know, had a huge impact on his career. Uh, Josh took that 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 uh, 86 mile an hour pitch. It looked almost like it kind of grazed the 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 chin and then hit the, the chin guard and then hit the uh, or the ear flap and then hit the face flush. And there was a lot of blood on the on the field uh, after that. So it was really really scary. But the fact that it does not include a broken bone, um, I think, means a shorter certainly a shorter stint on the IL than, than longer. I don't know how he's going to be ready to play in four or five days. I'm sure there's got to be some swelling there, and you got to imagine that, a, that vision's probably impacted a little bit. Haven't had a chance to talk to the Rangers or him since that happened. He did um, post on Instagram this morning that he expects to be back on the field soon uh, and that everything is is pretty is pretty good, which which is good to hear. Um, 
I think in the short term, it creates some really interesting calls for the Rangers if they do have to put him on the IL because they don't really have any options other than to call up a third catcher in Sam Huff. Their, their infield or outfield options are Dustin Harris, um, Jonathan Ornelas, and Luis Angel Acuna. And none of those guys have played above AA until Ornelas made his AAA debut on March 30th. So um, they don't have anybody on the roster to really call up and, and, and fill in. So it's going to be interesting to see what they do. I would think in the short term it means that you use a lot more Ezekiel, Ezekiel Duran in left field. Um, and if you can get by, if you only are going to miss Josh for four, for four days, maybe you just keep him on the roster, um, through that Chicago series and and go from there. Um, but uh, listen to this point, the Rangers had been pretty fortunate. I mean, I know it was only three games into the season, but Seattle's already lost Robbie Ray. The Astros have already lost Jose Altuve. These are big, significant losses. And the Rangers pitching staff, there were lots of questions about how healthy these guys would be. And so far, you know, they're on the brink of getting through their first turn with no health issues whatsoever. That's a big plus for them. So tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, we'll have Jacob DeGrom's second start. Uh, You know, there's been a lot of discussion about, uh, oh, obviously they did not go very well, giving up five earned runs in his uh, first start on opening day. Uh, I will say this, though, even watching that game, uh, he's throwing 99, 100 miles an hour, and guys are having to go the opposite way with that stuff. Uh, And some of those were finding some holes, and there was some pretty weak contact on some of them. And he talked about that after the game that, uh, yeah, there were a couple of, of balls, basically the Alec Bohm hit, that uh, were shots. Uh, he, he made bad pitches, and, and Alec took uh, advantage of those. Uh, I don't really have any concerns about him going into the second start. Do you? Not, especially after seven strikeouts and no walks? No, I, I, a couple things. I think three of those balls left the bat, it, three of those extra base hits left the bat at 80 miles an hour or less, which, you know, that's that's the – the definition of a, of a cue ball hit, you know, Nate Lowe was playing off the line one on one, didn't make a great play on another. Um, and then there was a bl- kind of a blooper that fell in for a double. Um, the other things for me that stand out are, listen, Jacob deGrom has great command. He probably went into that game wanting to go away from those guys. Those guys did a great job of, of battling and taking the ball the opposite way. He knows he's going to have to probably come in more on batters now. And the thing is, he can do that. Uh, the other part of it for me is Mike Maddox is is exemplary as a game preparation coach. And I think that any flaws that the Rangers may have had in their prep for, for this season going in with the new shift rules and any of that stuff that may have led to any of those hits um, – I think that will all be addressed in between starts. And so I have zero issue. It's not like the velocity was down. It's not like it's not like there were any any major issues. Um, I just think this is, again, he had two spring training starts. And there was probably going to be a hiccup somewhere along the way where he didn't have great command. And that was a little bit of what happened on opening day. Uh, and I think he'll come out on Wednesday and, you know, he'll – be back to Jacob DeGrom. I'm certainly not going to render any decisions on whether or not I'm concerned about Jacob DeGrom based on one or two starts. Well, he's at least made a start. And so that's the big difference. And Justin Verlander hasn't been able to do that. And of course, that's the guy that replaced Jacob DeGrom in New York and the Mets. And of course, 
a lot of Mets fans feeling like uh, we'd rather have Justin Verlander anyway. And then I don't know that I would really argue with him about that until Verlander got hurt. Uh, so we'll see how long he's going to be out. But you talked about the, the other injuries around and Robbie Ray. Uh, and we don't know how long he's going to be out with, uh, with the Mariners. And we don't know how long these uh, Altuve is going to be out for a while with the Astros. But uh, these are legitimate concerns for both of those clubs. I picked the, the Rangers third in the division. Uh, and, of course, we saw that the Angels pitching has been very good so far. They only played Oakland, but they still pitched well. Uh, and that has always been the issue with uh, the Angels. Uh, just not enough pitching. They've wasted the career of Mike Trout so far, and they're busy uh, wasting uh, Shohei Otani's as well. So, uh, Evan, do you want to you know, recalibrate any after uh, four or five games into the season? We want to look at the division again? No, I mean, I, I well, I mean, I don't want to recalibrate after four games, which is basically what one fortieth of the season. Um, but I do feel like, listen, the Rangers were in position to win in the mid eighties this year. Um, if things go well for them, they could push ninety, and things going well for them does include. You don't, you know, in the name of sportsmanship, I don't want to see anybody getting hurt. But in terms of the transactional, uh, oh, your your word of the day, transactional. The transactional uh, uh, element of a division race. When one team loses something, it stands that another team gains. So uh, the the fact that Altuve is going to be out until mid May, the fact that Robbie Ray has a flexor strain which is always concerning um, if you're the pitcher or the team dealing with it. Those are things that certainly that certainly bode a little bit better for the Rangers. They play Houston um, in 10 days. Uh, they don't play Seattle until early early May. Uh, but look, they got a, they got three games with Philadelphia, a Philadelphia team that was missing Bryce Harper, that was missing Rice Hopkins, uh, that – that was uh, out on, on, I think, I don't think Gregory Soto was there either. So, I mean, they were missing a lot of pieces and it doesn't hurt when you need to get off to a fast start to play some teams that are less than full strength. I think it's worked well for the Rangers to, to, to this point. They've got six games against Kansas city coming up in the next two weeks. That's a team that even full strength is not considered a very strong team. All I'm saying, Kevin, is the elements are in place for this team to get off to a quicker start. And if a quicker start gives you control of the division early on and makes you the the team that other teams have to chase, maybe it does give you a little bit more of, a, of, of an advantage and a leg up. So Bruce Bochy got a reputation as a master bullpen uh, strategist, and uh, he, he kind of pulled one out of his hat the other day uh, when he sent uh, Will Smith in to close the, the last game against the Phillies. I did not see that coming. Uh, I don't know if you did. Uh, he had kind of announced that Jose LeClerc, or at least that's what Will Smith said, that he had announced that Jose LeClerc was going to be the closer uh, kind of out of the gate. And that lasted, oh, two games. Uh, so what? So I guess what that says to us going forward is that uh, it's just kind of a situational thing, right? I think, Kevin, sorry. I think that, um, yeah, there's going to be some situations to it. I think there was – the possibility on Friday, on, on Sunday, that you had the left-handed hitter that they were most concerned about, or the hitter in the ninth inning they were most concerned about, may have been Bryson Stott of the first three. 
Um, and if it got to a situation where you had runners on base, you were going to be facing Kyle Schwarber, who was the guy that they didn't want to beat them. And so maybe a left-hander in that situation made a little bit more sense. I also think that Bochy is is a tiny bit concerned about um, about Leclerc's command and and potential for for walk issues. He did walk a guy uh, in the ninth inning on opening day and went to three two. And Bochy did say that that was probably going to be his last pitch if he hadn't. And I think early in the year, you know, when you've already won the series and you've you've got a chance to sweep things, you can get a little bit creative and say, look, I want to get everybody involved. I, I, I know this guy. I think that this guy is, is, is an option for me to close games. And so I want to make sure he feels involved. And I also think that there's going to be some element of Bruce Bochy that is going to be somewhat unpredictable, that is not going to manage strictly by rote. I do think he likes roles, but I do think right now he's also saying, I've got a little bit of an unproven commodity in the bullpen and I'm willing to give guys some opportunities, particularly if they give me a little bit more of an edge in this particular situation. And I've got no problem with it. And let's let's just uh, remind people of this. When you have Bruce Bochy's reputation, when you have three world titles, then you get a little grace, right? Then you go, well, okay, all right. I, I don't necessarily like this, but this guy knows what he's doing here. And if this is what he thinks we need to do, then okay. And, and I also need to give just point this out. Jose Leclerc, in, in, in every time he's been closer or not closer, he's been rarely, fairly egoless in, in that whole role. So if you were going to say to somebody, hey, we're going to give you a night off tonight and we're going to let somebody else do it, I don't think you're going to bruise the ego or cause any real um, identity problems with a guy like Leclerc. And that's, again, a situation where a manager has to know his players and know their personalities, right? If you had a guy that was a dyed-in-the-wool closer and you did that, maybe you've got a different situation on your hands. I think when it's all said and done, Kevin, I think the guy in the bullpen that most likely has the stuff to close is Jonathan Hernandez. He's the guy that can throw 98-99. He's got the ability to strike guys out now. But I think if that develops, it's going to develop organically. I think Bruce is going to let this stuff kind of of play out and does should we call him bruce or should we call him boach i mean bruce just it, I, I don't know what to call him on the air i can't call him boach I, you know it was just like the thing with ron washington everybody calling him wash i just felt like you know i know him and i and i and i've talked to him and all that i'm just not comfortable just jumping in on the nickname right can we can i just call him by his name you know bruce or bochi you know one of the two i don't no, I'm not calling Bochy. You think you're okay with Bruce, though? I mean, I, Bochy I'm okay sounds more like a manager to me than Bruce. I got to tell you, and, and Bochy is just a little too close to douche to me. And I just, I have a, I have a real problem with that nickname anyway. You know, just not, just not good. I don't okay. like it. All right, like well, it. we'll just leave it at that then. Yeah, let's just call him. Let's call him Bruce. That's what his parents named him. It's not my, it's not my fault. You know, so. Anyway. <laughs> Okay, that's going to do it for our Rangers talk. We're going to move over and get a little Cowboy stuff in here because you know what? We can't have a podcast without talking about the Cowboys at least a little bit. Right, we David? try. Yeah, no, no. Evan, Evan's against it. Evan's fine. Evan just wants to move on. 
Yeah. So, David, uh, we've had a a little mini controversy here from the the, – I don't remember where it all started. But anyway, it was when the Cowboys – it indicated that that maybe that Tyron Smith would start at right tackle because he's a better pass blocker than Terrence Steele, that maybe Terrence Steele was going to be a swing tackle, or maybe we'll try him at left guard. So, so what do you make of all that? Well, this this arose out of the league meetings in Phoenix last week, which is the uh, the only break between uh, the start of free agency and the trades, and and really uh, the heavy preparation for the draft. And we have three podcasts after this that will take place before the draft, where we'll get into uh, specific players that. Uh, the Cowboys may have an interest in and, and what makes sense for them going forward on the draft later this month. But yeah, last week, and this is Terrence Steele, who's injured at the end of the year, uh, is coming back from that injury, but by all accounts is, is well ahead of schedule. Just a, uh, just a rehab warrior, as they call it. Uh, very impressed with what he's doing out there is what people say. Um, but um, so now it's like, you know, Tyron Smith went into the right tackle role for the end of the season. And, and and last week at the league meetings, you had Jerry Jones on one day saying that he viewed at this moment, he viewed Terrence Steele as the swing tackle. And then the next day, uh, Mike McCarthy didn't really, didn't really latch onto the swing tackle label, but acknowledged that there had been some conversation about whether or not to cross train Terrence Steele at guard as well. Uh, so a lot of people took this again as a discussion about what might happen all the way to the end. And it's people going, well, why would you move Terrence Steele from right tackle to left guard and put Tyron Smith out there? Tyron Smith didn't play that well at right tackle at the end of the season. Um, my, my read on all of this is they haven't even started OTAs yet. If Terrence Steele is this team's best right tackle. He will be the starting right tackle when they open the season in September. No one is going to take his job away and hand it to Tyron Smith in these sunset years uh, just as a reward for how Tyron Smith has played throughout his career. So, and and just because that this is the time of year you're going, okay, well, who are our best five guys and how can we get them all in the field at the same time? Well, Tyron, Tyron, you know, Terrence Steele is arguably the best run blocker on that offensive line. So maybe you move, you know, you're just talking about getting the best five. Does it work? Can he cross train and really settle in at left guard after being a right tackle? Um, these are all things they look at. They'll tinker with in the offseason program and in training camp. But to me, the bottom line is, you know, Mike McCarthy is about to enter his fourth season. In his first three years, Tyron Smith, as elite of a player as he is, Tyron Smith has missed two out of every three games that Mike McCarthy has coached. Is this coaching staff going to go into the season saying, Tyron Smith is our starting right tackle and we'll just reconfigure this line to make it work? I think that's unrealistic. I think they're just looking at some things now, throwing it out, uh, keeping everyone engaged, cross-training, and and this will settle into the way it should be. I I don't think anyone is trying to force Terrence Steele out of the lineup or or showing him a lack of respect for what he has done. All of that being said, the one thing you hear a lot, you heard a lot out of Phoenix was protection. 
uh, better protection for Dak Prescott. And while the people I talked to said that Tyron Smith didn't play particularly well at right tackle at the end of the season, uh, he is regarded as a better pass protector than Terrence Steele. So this is something you talk about in the offseason. Then you put it out on the field to see if it works. If it works, you continue to do it and look at some options. If not, you go, okay, we tried it. Let's go back to what we know has a better chance of working. Yeah, I don't have a problem with the, the tinkering myself. I mean, no. you, know, you just look at these things and, and because – This is when you do it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't see a problem with that. You know, I, I think that uh, absolutely – the Cowboys, and I don't, I don't believe the Cowboys would move Tyron Smith over to right tackle just because they like him, you know, just because no. they, they, they're trying to make uh, do, uh, do him a solid. I don't think that's going to happen at all. I think they will make the best decision. I think it's intriguing to think if Terrence Steele, obviously the very good run blocker, you know, would the Cowboys be better served if he was their left guard? I, I'm thinking of, about when Larry Allen, who, who moved around a little bit, we remember that, yeah. right? Like, yep. like started at guard, started at tackle. One of the, the greatest offensive linemen in the history of the game. The Cowboys didn't have any problem with moving him around, and no one else had any problem with that back then, right? So mm-hmm. I don't. Terrence Steele is not Larry Allen. Uh, so uh, I, I think if if they could figure out and just give him a little work at left guard and figure out if that's going to work there, then then maybe that's a good idea. If if Tyron Smith could actually play right tackle and stay upright for seventeen games, he hasn't done that in a while now. So I don't know that they really need to be worried too much about it. But it doesn't hurt. To think about it, it doesn't hurt to get a guy a little bit of work there either. So, so David, tell us who's going to start at left guard if it's not Terrence Steele. Well, I think uh, that, you know one of their under the radar free agent signings. Uh, every, the focus was on the trade, you know, with with Gilmore and Cooks, and those were their two big moves, and and really keeping their own. But they went outside the organization and, and signed Chuma Adoga, and while he is. He is a swing guy. He has played tackle and guard. While he's played a little more tackle and he started in this league, um, they're going to, my understanding is, they're going to plug him in at left guard from the start and just see how that goes. So um, I think that's going to be filled internally. I think Adoga has a good shot. I think Matt Farniok, uh, who is a center slash guard that they have liked, who got hurt a little last year, uh, I think he'll be in that competition as well. And the bottom line, and what some people were, you know, wondered about, and Tyler Smith, their first-round pick from last year, exceeded expectations as a rookie for how he played left tackle. Uh, And they want to keep him out there because they consider him the left tackle of the future. But once you get out there working, once you start cross-training guys, uh, once Terrence Steele comes back, maybe you look at it and you go, you know what? Steele's just more comfortable at right tackle. Tyron Smith's more comfortable at left tackle. This is still only going to be a short-term thing. Let's just kick Tyler Smith back to left guard, which is how they envisioned starting last year, and have Smith and Smith on the left side of your line with, um, you know, Zach Martin and Terrence Steele, who was a who were dominant run blockers on the right side and go from there for a team that says it wants to be better at running the ball. So I just think all of this is on the table, and it's premature to say, well, what are they, you know, why are they tossing steel out in the mix? Why are they deferring to, to Tyre, you know, Tyron Smith to this extent, given his injury history? It, it's all going to work out. They're, they're, uh, I, I think we've seen from this coaching staff, they're not going to wedge something in just to uh, accommodate some guy's pedigree 
or emotional health at, at a certain stage of his career if he doesn't deserve it. So, David, uh, I know we're, we're not going to really talk about the particulars of the draft. We're going to say that for the next three weeks. Uh, but, you know, the Cowboys, as, as it is right now, they have the 26th pick. Uh, yep. speculation about whether they trade up, trade down, trade out, whatever. Uh, I know that uh, if you go back and look at the drafts, when Jerry, uh, without Jimmy, has traded out of the first round, it's almost always been a disaster. Uh, and that's trading out of the first round. Uh, if you look at his worst uh, drafts, I think there's like seven where he did not have a first round pick since Jimmy left. And I think six of those were bad drafts. The only one that was saved in 2019 was by the fact that he was able to draft uh, Tony Pollard in the fourth round and Donovan Wilson in the sixth. Uh, fine work by Will McClay on that. That's that's the unfortunate thing about before before Will was here, the Cowboys might do well uh, without Jimmy in the draft, but it was just always at the top of it. It was always mm-hmm. in, with their first round pick that they had a chance of saving the draft. After that, not so much. Uh, that's been the beauty of what Will McClay has done. He is he has lengthened the draft, if you if you will, and made it possible for them to add players in the second, third, fourth, and obviously in Donovan Wilson's case, even the sixth round. So do you, do you suppose the Cowboys are just going to sit there at 26 now, knowing that they don't have, you know, any particular needs, whatever they draft, it's just going to be probably the best player is going to be available to them. I believe so. They've been a little more receptive to doing that lately and in large part because of Will McClay and their draft and develop philosophy has worked. Um, so I think they're inclined. They've seen six, they've seen their approach yield success. Um, it's, as Stephen Jones said the other day, you know, typically the Cowboys have about anywhere from 17 to 20 first round grades on players in a draft. Well, they're sitting at 26. So chances are there's, they're going to be no first round players on their board when they pick, but I'll ask you this question rhetorically before we end it today, and this is when we can explore more in these next three podcasts leading up to the draft. Is there a position that you say the Cowboys absolutely must address in this draft that you elevate over every other position? I I don't think there is either. I I, I think there's a preference. My preference personally would be running back. Uh, because of where they are. And and to me, that's where you get a decision in the first round. If a B. John Robinson or the guy at Georgia's slides and is right in front of you, do you give up a later round pick to jump up to get a running back because you put a higher priority on that to keep your offense where you want it to be this next season? But I, I think at the moment, they're just inclined to uh, stay there, see what unfolds, see what comes their way. And they've done they've been very patient and have done very well on that over the last four to five years. No arguments here about any of that. All right, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. We thank you for being with us, and we're going a little bit long this time. We hope you stayed all the way to the very end. Uh, you missed some great stuff if you didn't, but of course you wouldn't know that, right? Did uh, Evan stay to the end, or did he leave? I can't tell. I, I'm just counting up the uh, how we adhered to the 15, 15, It wasn't 15, 15, you know. Evan, and and Evan what were those like time cues? Planning. What were those time cues, Evan? And what were they yeah. come out to? I don't even want to get into those splits at this uh... Evan doesn't like pre-planning for those of you out there. He just likes to wing it. He just wants to just do it from the seat of his pants. I, his his pants, Evan. Transaction me, 11, we like to call him. Well, a lot of people like to tell me that I'm, I'm great at improvisational comedy. Yeah, a lot of people. Do all they? Those people, all those people who are talking in your head. A lot of people. <laughs> <tell you that. laughs> 
Yeah. So everybody, everybody out here, that's going to do it for us. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>